This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host and fellow agitator, as always, Adam Keller. And we are broadcasting live online and on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. Today, Alabamians are going to get some more transparency with economic incentives, but... Incentives already given will remain in the shadows. Michael Bailey talks to us about how to win the fight for better air quality. Bosses were fined for killing an Alabama worker. And campus workers are fighting for health care in Tuscaloosa. All that and more on today's program. If you want to be part of the show today, we've got a phone number and the line is open today. We have in the main show for the last couple of weeks kept the lines closed until overtime. But we are, uh, we are live uh, now, and we have the phone lines open. That's 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. If you've got anything you would like to contribute during the program, any comments on uh, topics that we're talking about, questions, uh, anything like that, you can give us a call at 844-899-8857. You can also leave a voicemail or send us a text message throughout the week. Uh, Speaking of, throughout the week, if you haven't gotten enough of us by the time that we wrap up here on the radio, or if you just want to see what we're up to while we are not live, you can follow us anywhere you find anything online. In particular, we've got a website that you should bookmark, make it part of your home tabs. That is tvlr.fm. We release new articles uh, several times, multiple times throughout the week. And uh, this week, in particular, we had a lot of new articles, uh, some original reporting, some uh, local commentary and analysis, uh, uh, some commentary and analysis on the Teamster stuff, uh, uh, summaries of segments from our last show, all good stuff at tvlr.fm. You can also find us, of course, on YouTube, TikTok, uh, Twitter, Facebook. All those good places at The Valley Labor Report. Uh, Just a reminder, your support helps us stay on the air, folks. If you're just listening to us online, you may not know that we are live on terrestrial radio, um, basically as paid programming, right? And we believe that that is uh, an important and valuable medium, and so we do pay for it, and that costs... Uh, as paying for it would imply money. So if you would like to help us do that, you can donate, tvlr.fm slash donate. You can also buy our merch at tvlr.fm slash store or become a patron at patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. 
if you're a member of a union, uh, then please do think about getting your local or international to sponsor the show. Uh, we absolutely could not do it without our uh, union sponsors. It's very important to the sustainability of this program. Let me add a disclaimer that any viewpoints or opinions expressed in this program today belong solely to their author and do not necessarily represent any organization or sponsor. We welcome all of our listeners, whether you are on YouTube, Facebook, Unclaimed Mysteries Radio, WVNN, WZZA, WHIV, or through your favorite podcast app. We are proud to be part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network and encourage our listeners to check it out. Absolutely. So uh, let's talk about this uh, first thing that we uh, mentioned in the headlines, and that is uh, this win for transparency in the economic incentives, uh, the way that we are going to we roll them out here in Alabama. Uh, if you are a regular listener to the show, you will know that the uh, economic incentives in Alabama are uh virtually completely opaque. Uh, I mean, there is nothing that you can get out of the Department of Commerce here in Alabama, uh, nothing you can get from the government, and of course the companies aren't going to come out with this on their own, right? So uh, it's very obscure, you know, we have no idea what strings are attached to the money, uh, whether or not the conditions are being met. You know, sometimes uh, municipalities and states will give economic incentives and tie it to the creation of so many jobs or something like that. We don't know what those conditions are, and we don't know if they're being met because the system is so, so opaque here in the state of Alabama. Um, in fact, in 2022, the disclosure laws were so poor that the state tied with Georgia for last place in a national transparency survey of state-level economic development programs, and the score was zero out of a hundred. Uh, but Adam, there is a little bit of good news uh, coming out of the legislature as the session ended a while back, isn't there? Right, yeah. And, and today's main show is going to be very Alabama-focused, so it is good to start with a little bit of good news out of Montgomery for a change. And so, uh, as Jacob described, we have a lot of issues with economic development and the way incentives are used in this state. But following years of pressure from Jobs to Move America, their coalition partners, and good government advocates, the Alabama legislature passed a bill to create better transparency around the state's use of tax incentives. The recently enacted Transparency and Incentives Act requires the Commerce Department to disclose annually the names of subsidized comp companies, the estimated value of tax credits per company, the county location of the project, the estimated number of jobs that will be created, what workers will be paid, and the company investment, along with the estimated return on investment of each subsidized project. This is a major victory for those concerned about government transparency and accountability, but we still have more work to do. And I want to point folks to Patricia Todd's uh, op-ed in AO.com, AO Political Reporter, uh, as well as the one she co-wrote uh, on Alabama Reflector. I want to highlight those uh, in particular. So Alabama has awarded over $5 billion to corporations to set up shop in the state, and that includes Amazon, Hyundai, Honda, Mercedes, and others. Uh, it's important to remember that these incentives are provided with tax dollars, but that the public has not had access to the company's names, incentive amount, type of incentive, and hourly wages. Many of the jobs created do not pay a living wage and are not considered quality jobs. 
Manufacturers who received incentives are having a hard time finding enough workers to fill the open positions. And of course, a Hyundai supplier that they own was recently found guilty of using immigrant child labor. These are not the only ways companies benefit from subsidies. They also get sales and use tax exemptions, property tax exemptions, free, to them at least, infrastructure, workforce development training, and more. Most of the incentives impact the education budget and reduce the funds available to improve public education in Alabama. And that's obviously critical because, according to most rankings, Alabama ranks among the lowest in the country in terms of math and reading proficiency and overall academic achievement. In fact, the U.S. News & World Report ranks Alabama as 44th in the country in education. Now, I don't put a lot of stock into some of those measurements, uh, but I think there's a little dispute that Alabama's education system certainly needs more investment, not less. Yeah, a absolutely. And and I do want to uh, just, just say again that we really appreciate Patricia Todd pulling this information, uh, all this information together uh, for some of these op-eds that she's been writing. That's where we're getting this information. And, and of course, you know, uh, some amount of verification went into, you know, that it's true uh, on our end. But uh, she was the original compiler of a lot of this information. And uh, from another one of these op-eds that she wrote in the Alabama Reflector, which is a new uh, reporting project by the state newsrooms uh, organization. Right. Yeah. Um, she said, uh, you know, she she made note that, you know, a lot more does still need to be done. We've got all of these that Adam laid out, uh, all of these uh, uh, requirements for transparency, but they only include uh, uh, job, job protections, not actual jobs created or actual wages paid. Uh, not to mention, there is no mention of how subsidized companies are going to be held accountable for the promises they make. So we've still got this issue of, okay, you know, we have these requirements, but how are we going to make sure that the companies are doing them? That's not addressed in this new transparency package. Uh, the law only applies to completed deals and does not clarify how companies were chosen to receive subsidies. So there's no transparency into the bidding process. There's no way for us as citizens to know if there was some uh, backroom dealing and whether or not the bids were open and competitive. Uh, and so it is still, that's why I said, you know, that's why I opened it with, you know, this is kind of a, a, it's a small win. It's better than nothing, right? You know, than, than having zero out of a hundred. I mean, presumably when these, when those rankings come out about Alabama's transparency next year, we'll maybe have, you know, 20 or 30 out of a hundred, hope something like that. Um, so it's still too early to say how good it's going to be. Um, and, uh, and if it will be easy to find and understand for the average Alabamian. And also, like I mentioned, this is not retroactive. So that $5 billion that Alabama, uh, that, that Adam mentioned earlier, we still are not going to know anything about that. That's $5 billion from citizens of Alabama, from the working people in this state that have gone to multi-billion dollar international corporations that we've got no idea what the agreement was, how it's being enforced, any, how it was bid, any of this stuff. We don't, we don't know, and under this law, we still won't know. 
So Jobs to Move America is encouraging the legislature to, in the upcoming sessions, create a separate budget for incentives so that legislators and the public can see how much is being spent and the actual return on investment. Uh, require companies that are found guilty of violations of labor or environmental laws to refund some or all of the subsidy money that it received. It's known as a clawback in states where, uh, you know, we don't, they don't just give away money for free uh, to these corporations. Uh, Jobs to Move America is also pushing for requirements that incentivizes uh, the creation of quality jobs with a minimum living wage uh, requirements that companies receiving these incentives negotiate a community benefits agreement with local coalitions to ensure that the the community has a voice in these uh, uh, in these incentive packages and the banning of non-disclosure agreements between companies and public officials that keep the terms of these incentive packages hidden from the public. Other states in the South have already uh, been disclosing subsidy data for some time, like North Carolina, South Carolina, Louisiana, and Tennessee. Uh, so, you know, this is absolutely something that we need to be doing. Uh, and, and, you know, Jobs to Move America and us, we don't necessarily dispute that tax incentives can be used to uh, recruit a business to set up shop in the state as a way to boost the economy. We And, and in fact, uh, I think that public investment is very good. <laughs> and I think that it can spur a lot of private investment as well, as well as being good on its own terms. There was a really great article in The Prospect last week about how baked into our laws about how we evaluate uh, public investment is what's known as crowding out. And it's this theory that says, okay, well, when the public invests, when government invests in something, it is only 50% as effective as a private investment. And it... Uh, uh, and it dissuades private investment in the sector that the public is investing in. Uh, and that's, that is just such a silly thing to think intuitively, but also with this CHIPS Act and the IRA, all of this, it's really uh, disproving that in a real, uh, you know, in real actual life, because in addition to these public investments in manufacturing and, and uh, uh, semiconductor production, there is more private investment than ever before in these industries. So it's really important that, uh, you know, that, that we recognize the value of public investment, but it's also important that we, you know, n not all public investment is created the same, right? And, we, and it's important that we be smart about it and that we hold the people who receive it accountable to us as a government and as a state. So Absolutely. I mean, transparency is so important there yep. in knowing about the wages and benefits that are offered and knowing exactly what the state is doing uh, and knowing their compliance with policy and law, that is huge. And I think having transparency should be the first step in any sort of economic development or certainly any kind of incentive package. So yeah, really, really appreciate Patricia Todd and Jobs to Move America for all their work on that front uh, because politicians love to tout economic development. Yeah. But this kind of transparency is a necessary first step. Uh, I totally agree with the additional recommendations. I think, you know, there's a lot more to be done, obviously. Mm -hmm. And in particular, I really think community benefits agreements, when done right, can be transformative. And so I really applaud the work Jobs to Move America is doing with those right here in Alabama. 
And I want to answer Todd in the chat who asked, uh, how does the Freedom of Information Act play into this? Is Alabama exempt from that? And the short answer is basically yes, the Freedom of Information Act uh, applies to the federal government, and then each state has their own version of it. And Alabama's public records access laws are uh, basically non-existent. There is no even requirement that the government entity... Um, uh, 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 acknowledge receipt. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they but, don't even have to acknowledge that they received a public uh, a public records access request. Much less give it to people. Much less give it to people in a timely fashion. Much less give it to people in a timely fashion for an affordable price. It also costs money sometimes to get these public records. And so you know, it our yeah, freedom absolutely. of information is is just absolutely. Yeah, terrible. we do have the Alabama Open Records Act, but it is incredibly weak <laughs> and um, not particularly useful. And as for the specifics of. Uh, some of the specific information with economic incentives and whether it's even subject to the Open Records Act, I really can't tell you. Uh, and so that's why I think, you know, putting some of this in black and white in legislation is pretty important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, we have a caller, so let's um, bring that caller on the line uh, really quick and we will see what they have to say. We'll go to a break and then we'll um, talk to uh, Michael Bailey about air quality. But first, let's talk to this caller from a 510 area code. All right. All right, 510. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Hey, this is Kat calling in from the Bay Area. I'm a UPS Teamster. Kat from the Bay Area. You said you're a Teamster? That's right. Awesome. Do you, and you work for UPS, I guess, presumably? Yeah, I work at the airport. What's on your mind, Kat? Um, in light of all the media attention that's been going around uh, the UPS negotiations and issues with part-time wages and whatnot. Um, I also wanted to raise an issue that I feel hasn't gotten quite as much media attention, which is around the market rate adjustments. Mm. We're actually going to be talking about that in the second half of the show in overtime. Uh, Sean O'Brien, the general president of the Teamsters, he made a really good point when uh, he was asked on Bloomberg about, uh, you know, the, the host credulously kind of recited what UPS uh, said to them. And, said, uh, and, and he was like, well, UPS is telling us that part-timers are making $20 an hour. And, uh, uh, and Sean O'Brien said, well, in some markets. They are doing these market rate adjustments to bring new employees in at $20 an hour. That's correct. But we still have some part-timers who have been there long before that who are stuck at $16.50. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. I mean, essentially the way that I see it is that in areas that have a much higher cost of living, like the Bay Area, um, the obviously like the coastal cities that UPS can kind of manipulate the wages however they see fit to, to bring in workers where and when they need them. And then when the when that workforce is no longer required, they just cut back the wages. You get like, you know, as much as half of the workforce at any given mm. location just quits. Um, and those who remain are, are stuck with significantly less income than what they had before and sometimes yeah. less hours and whatnot. Yeah, absolutely. And and it sounds like it, it sounds like the negotiating committee is targeting that. 
Yeah, and I think that we as part-timers, especially in these locations, really need to get that message out there because there's a lot of focus on like the $25 an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's great. I think that's the floor, not the ceiling, honestly. Yeah. Um, but for some places, honestly, 25 is not even enough to like get get the average worker in, in the door or excited about going on strike because that's maybe like one or two dollars more than what they're already making and it's like barely enough to scrape by you know living in the bay area where it costs like two thousand dollars for a one-bedroom apartment so um if you're making already like you know low 20s per hour Mm -hmm. you need two three jobs no question yeah, absolutely, and that's another thing that they're that you know that UPS is going out uh, about, and and it, they they're always quoting the the full time pay, um, which is not even representative. The full time driver pay is not even representative of the majority of the UPS workforce. The majority of the UPS workforce are part timers, um, which is not something that they ever say. But even with the full time driver salary, they're saying, "Oh, it's ninety three thousand dollars a year." And Sean O'Brien mentioned in this in in this clip that we're going to be playing later that uh, that's true. But to get that ninety three thousand dollars, you got to work sixty seventy hours a week of mandated uh, overtime, right? So uh, there's just a lot of ways that that UPS is really uh, fudging the numbers to try to get the public on their side. And uh, and and I certainly appreciate uh, Sean O'Brien and and folks like you. Um, you know, talking in your communities uh, and and making sure that 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 folks actually know what's going on uh, with UPS, and then comparing what y'all are making to the billions of dollars in profit that UPS has made just in the last year. So I, I appreciate the call, Kat. Yeah, and just to be specific, I think like the the clear demand here is like if they give us those market rate adjustments, they can't take them back. You know, mm-hmm. they can't cut them. They have to give us whatever contractual raises and whatever cost of living adjustments are already in the contract contract on top of that. Because right now, if there's contractual raises, but they're already paying you more than the base wage in the contract, you don't get a raise. So there's people where I work who haven't seen raises for multiple years in a row for that reason. Yeah. Um, so just trying to elevate that. Um, and then also, you know, tying it back in with the general point of why is cost of living so high to begin with, you know, because uh the the landlords are treating real estate as a speculation in these big cities and um we have to see that there's multiple different ways that people in the the corporate power and the ruling class are are uh pressing people uh make it and making it impossible to live right yeah absolutely right. appreciate the call cat and uh and and uh keep us updated and and best of luck in these contract negotiations Yep. Appreciate you. With that, we're going to go ahead and go to a break. On the other side, we're going to be talking to Michael Bailey about uh, air quality, which is something that that is important and and had been for a small amount of time during the pandemic, uh, something that people were really kind of interested in. Uh, and it's fallen by the wayside amid the you know, quote unquote, end of the pandemic as it leaves the the front of people's minds. Uh, but it is still, you know, the, COVID is still here and there are still people getting it and there are still people dying from it at higher rates than we ever died from the flu. And so I'm, I wouldn't argue that we should shut down everything again, but there are ways that we can make normal life safer 
for 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 uh uh you know, non-immunocompromised people, but in particular for immunocompromised people, for uh, uh, for people that that are more at risk, um, and there are a lot of things that we can do uh, that that would not affect the quality of our lives that we wouldn't even really notice, except for the fact that we would get sick less. So we're going to talk to Michael Bailey about that on the other side of the break. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. IBW five five eight is like a great football team. You've got to have the aptitude, skills, and knowledge to outperform the competition. If you're a non-union electrician, now is the perfect time to get off the sideline and join our team. We have the absolute best wages and benefit package in North Alabama and Southern Tennessee. It's because our team stands together, bargains together, and our families benefit from it. With immediate openings, you have the opportunity to see why the IBW is the right choice. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtnj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services provided is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. Support for this program comes from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 136, out of Central Alabama. Learn more at IBEW136.org. Attention union members, membership organizations, podcasters, or anyone with a payment processing need. The future is here, and your organization needs to be prepared by working with Unionly. With Unionly, your union or organization can take payments on a mobile device, eliminating processing fees, giving you a better price than other payment processing methods, while at the same time supporting a union-friendly business with a specialized skill set to meet your needs. Your members will thank you when they pay their dues at their convenience without waiting in line to deposit cash or check. Start preparing for the future today by calling 206-595-8631 or visiting unionly.io. Are you looking for a better future, a career that can have you set for life, and to be a part of something that's bigger than yourself? If you are, then consider a skilled trades apprenticeship with the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades. The work of IUPAT is all around us, from the industrial painters who work on the bridges to drywall finishers, floor coverers, the glazers who install the glass in our skylines, and so much more. With an IUPAT apprenticeship, you earn while you learn and receive benefits while learning the trade, including a pension. We provide world-class education free of charge. That's right, no student debt. Our starting salaries for apprentices that graduate is above the national median salary with benefits for entire families. And you have the flexibility to take your trade wherever you'd like in the country to work. IUPAT District Council 77 covers our entire region, so give Adam Booth a call at 205-603-3142 for more information. Again, that phone number is 205-603-3142. Come build a better future with us today and join IUPAC. The sign hit the city like a bolt of lightning. You know the photo. It's iconic. 
marches in the streets holding a simple sign with a simple message. I am a man. The I Am Story podcast explores the fight that inspired those words, how a group of sanitation workers in Memphis stood up and made history. They don't see us as men and women. Go to IamStory.com or wherever you get your podcasts to subscribe. I'm attorney Tommy Senior. When you've been injured and need help, you need a lawyer who's with you. Senior'd Law. You need attorneys always available to take care of you. Senior'd Law. And keep you in the loop. It's your case. You need to know what's happening. Senior'd Law. And never a charge to meet with us to evaluate your case. Senior'd Law. A new firm, but an old name. One that will stay with you every step of the way. Senior'd Law. The name with proven results. Labor creates all wealth. All wealth should go to labor. And you are listening to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. And we have a phone number and the line is open. If you want to get where Kat was before the break, you can give us a call at 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. And so let's talk to Michael Bailey now. Michael Bailey is a local parent here in Huntsville and co-founder of Indoor Air Care Advocates. Indoor Air Care Advocates. He's a friend of the show, a recurring guest now, talking about an issue that should resonate with all of us regardless of affiliation, of of our politics, of of what we think about unions, anything like that. And that is uh, the way the indoor air quality impacts our working conditions, our students' learning conditions, and the ways that government and employers can take effective action for our health and safety. Uh, He's been really active in pushing local school systems to make the much-needed improvements in this area, and we certainly appreciate his work. Michael, welcome back to the Valley Labor Report. Thanks so much for the intro. And first things first, I think it's really cool that you mentioned immunocompromised people, people with comorbidities, and those are real people in our community. I I know some. uh, They're not, like, rare or anything like that. And it's really a compassionate and courageous and important act to make sure we don't leave such people behind. These are our community members. So I wanted to thank you for that. But I also, um, I want people to know that there are normal people, uh, well, shucks, that is really a, a faux pas, but there are people who, um, there are people who, a lot of people consider themselves normal if they don't have a comorbidity or an, or an immunocompromised um, thing. I'm trying to think from the point of view of people who don't experience those uh, parts of life. And so they think of themselves as normal. And so there are normal people who didn't have any, you know, comorbidity fairy come tell them that they've got issues uh, that end up experiencing problems. And there are furthermore, normal people, right, people who consider themselves not to have any of these problems, and so they think it's not an issue, who are experiencing problems because of the fact that we are getting sick more often. And it's not just COVID, it actually is the flu, it's also RSV and things like that. And the reason I have anything to say about it at all is because I I know there'd be solutions. It's clear that we don't have to quote, live in fear by shutting things down. We can really do something to make it easier for all of us to live productive, happy, long lives. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and so let's start with talking about chronic absenteeism, uh, chronic as- absenteeism in relation to our students in public schools. Yeah, for sure. So most schools, including Madison schools, and that, I, I count Madison City and Madison County in that, didn't really do much with ventilation after 2020. 
we just kind of went back to masks optional and um, we embraced normalcy. And the ALSDE report card said that Madison City Schools chronic absenteeism in 2021 was less than 3%, which sounds really dreamy. And after the U.S. Department of Education withdrew their COVID-19 reporting waiver, where do you think that chronic absenteeism went? Hmm. I'll give you a guess. <laughs> yeah. Let's see. It went this way. Yeah. It, it doubled in Alabama. And in Madison City Schools, it increased by a factor of 2.6. And I informed Dr. Nichols and Madison City Schools Board of Education in June that the, the measurements that we have show that their schools aren't bringing in even one-seventh of the outdoor air that's supposed to be brought in according to mechanical code. And I explained how that would make kids sick. And he said that, well, if you don't count the period between August and January... Which is ridiculous. Uh, then you know our attendance is 95 or 96 percent, but I know there to be parents that have been complaining since January and February that their kids are still sick. I know that there was a pylon in a mom's group of like 40 parents that said that their kids were, and I quote, missing so much school it's insane. And so there's also chronic absenteeism that I think is maybe swallowing up some component of that lack of attendance. I also know a mom whose kid was sick 19 or more days in the school year, and Madison City Schools called her to ask her how they could support her in getting her kid to school more often. And I thought that was really adding insult to injury because I've been trying to tell them what they ought to do to do that. Um, parents need to tell schools, fix your shoddy ventilation and quit costing me in sick time. Um, so yeah, there's also, I really ought to mention this. There's a dad who spoke at Madison City Schools Board of Education meeting, which was captured by I Vote Madison, which in full disclosure, my wife co-runs um, I Vote Madison. And right. they recorded a Madison City School Board meeting on the 6th of June, where a dad said that he and, and his five kids are sick so often, and several other families, same thing, that they've all gotten together with an attorney because of the undue burden of doctor's notes, uh, not to be able to keep their kids home like they should. And that guy, whether he knows it or not, is advocating for air quality because of what I'll share with you next. But essentially, they're all experiencing that heightened illness and they're routinely sending their kids to school sick. And that's the kids are carrying the weight of the school that didn't do anything with ventilation and still isn't meeting code. And by the way, if anybody knows that person, please contact Indoor Air Care Advocates. It's indooraircareadvocates at gmail.com. We would really like to connect with that father. So yeah, tell us what you've learned about Madison City schools in particular, but also in, in general about your research with local school districts and air quality and like who's up to code, basically. Absolutely. So um, we learned that Madison City schools thought they could use a technology called ionization to stand in for some amount of ventilation in some schools. Do you know what ionization is? Uh, no, not really. I've heard of it, but I have no clue what that is. Neither did I. I was following all these experts and they're like, you should ventilate, you should filter. And I had never seen one say you should ionize. So <laughs> we looked into it. And uh, the way it's supposed to work is that ions are pushed into the breathing zone. And in that breathing zone ventilation, those ions are supposedly going to increase the particle mass and drag those particles to the ground or make them stick to the wall through a process that those vendors call agglomeration. Uh, but the EPA and Boeing, even right here in Huntsville Labs, uh, concluded that that doesn't contribute significantly to disinfection or pulling particles out of the air. And even the disclaimer on the website for one of those vendors expressly says it's not intended to prevent infections. And furthermore, there are chemists at UC Boulder and elsewhere who say if you add ions to indoor air, the things that already are in indoor air, like paint fumes and carpeting fibers and other things, can partially decompose and add unanticipated byproducts to the air. So it's kind of like a little science experiment. And that's why I think that the Bloomberg School of Public Health really put it best when they said the primary aim for air quality improvement should remain uh, removing contaminants from the air and not introducing new substances to the air. And I firmly believe that. So um, because they're using ionization, what proportion of outdoor air would you guess that they're cutting out and not giving to students? Um, 
at this point now I'm I'm starting to think none. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually you're onto something almost. Um, the school wouldn't give us any numbers for how much outdoor air they are giving the students, and it's maybe because they don't have the tools to measure it. I'm not really sure. Uh, but we took matters into our own hands. Literally, we gave some carbon dioxide monitors like this device that I'm showing you to occupants who go to those schools, um, not specifying what kind of occupants, uh, just to keep it vague here. But right. uh, we sent these monitors to Columbia Elementary, James Clemens High, and Mill Creek Elementary. And we confirmed that two out of those three had CO2 accumulation that climbed past two or three times the amount that you'd expect to see in a school that meets code. And that's based on a figure from uh, the Division of Construction Management. They said, if you're meeting code, the number on this little screen ought not exceed 1,200 generally. You know, just, I'm paraphrasing, that's a rule of thumb but that's sure. roughly what it shouldn't exceed. And in one school, the number was as high as 3,700. Now, CO2 isn't gonna hurt anybody necessarily at those levels. That's not the thing we're worried about. What it means though, is that the air that students are exhaling, they're making stale air. They're consuming the fresh air and exhaling, and there's nothing replacing it with clean air. And so, whereas in a room that meets code, you could expect to breathe only about one to 2% air that comes from other people's lungs, which is kind of yuck but only one to 2%, so that's good. But if you're not meeting code like um, like Columbia Elementary where it was 3,700 parts per million and climbing, then you're breathing more than 9% of every breath from other people's lungs. And I, I firmly doubt that anybody on the Board of Education would volunteer to huff directly out of the breathing zone um, air coming out of students' mouths and just go ahead and get sick. Uh, so right. if, if we're wondering how sickness can happen, it's not like you need a public health degree. It's like if you're not adding fresh air, and you're letting stale air accumulate, and the kids are sitting together in a hot box, they're going to get more sick very likely. Right, yeah. And so the thing about it is, like, they can actually take action against this, right? I mean, there are things that can be done to prevent illness in this way and to to recirculate air or to have fresh air, basically, uh, and to improve the indoor air quality that ultimately translates into less sickness, healthier people, less absence uh, for kids, less absence for employees, like, right? There, there's stuff that can be done. Exactly. Yeah, the, it really is. In the end, it's hitting everyone's pocketbooks. It's hitting your PTO balance when you have to take off work to take the kid to the doctor. If it does get to that point, you're sometimes taking off work because the kid just isn't sick enough to go to the doctor, but they um, need to stay home. And so you're um, at home with them for whatever reason. In some cases, uh, just the child um, isn't attending school. That's har harming academic performance. There are so many impacts to our productivity and to our academic excellence. I don't know why we would tolerate it when just meeting code would reduce that amount of rebreathed air. And that's a first step. Mechanical code, as adopted by the Division of Construction Management, says you should be giving kids at least 10 cubic feet per minute per kid of, of outdoor air or equivalent. And there are actually recommendations beyond that for putting kids back after the pandemic or during, you know, really during it. <laughs> um, CDC in 2020 said you ought to be giving about 18 or 20 CFM per person. And they define that in terms of carbon dioxide, but it's roughly 18 or 20 cubic feet per minute per person. The World Health Organization, 21 CFM per person. The Lancet uh, said 30 CFM per person. There's a new standard from ASHRAE. I've heard a lot of schools say, well, we implement ASHRAE. And I think that they're talking about standard 62.1, which is essentially mechanical code. But there's a new standard, and that, that organization, by the way, said 62.1 ain't enough. And they also said, well, here's a new standard that would be enough, and it's 50 CFM per person. That's about four times what you require in mechanical code if you, if you incorporate both the per person and the per unit area amount of code. So I'm getting real scientific here, but basically the recommendations are all give students 
way more than code. <laughs> so if we're giving them way less than code, like one seventh of code, we're doing the literal opposite of the recommendations. And I shouldn't be surprised if we find that students' chronic absenteeism figures go up, if we find that parents are consulting lawyers because of undue burden of doctor's notes, and that we find pylons in mom's groups about the excessive illness. I don't think that that would be a surprise if I knew that we were doing that. Right, right. And and one thing is you have approached school districts throughout North Alabama with ways to address this, including um, my understanding was that there was a grant run through UAB where uh, HEPA filters were actually available for every classroom for basically any school that, that actually wanted them, uh, any school that requested it. Uh, so talk to us about that. Yeah, that's the ELC program. Basically, they used to be testing kids for COVID and that kind of went out of style. People weren't inter interested in it or participating or whatever the case may be. And they said, well, we got to liquidate this money in a way that does aid public health. And they made the smart decision to say, well, we could buy portable HEPA filters because what they knew is that portable HEPA filters can produce what's called equivalent outdoor air. And that just means it's equivalent in terms of not having contaminants in it to if you had brought in outdoor air but you don't have to condition this air from these HEPA filters. It's just like installing a window in the middle of the room. Uh, mm -hmm. But you know you can't reduce CO2 with that, just a um, quick understanding of if filtration is used, it's not gonna change this number, but it will clean the air. And so they gave these out to schools, uh, first five at a time per school, then 15 at a time. And finally they were just like, here, just take all the HEPA filters, nobody's taking them. And there's one school I know of that I um, can't speak about the name of that school, but there's one school in Alabama that I know took two HEPA filters per classroom and mm -hmm. they're getting enough they're getting enough equivalent outdoor air in their classrooms on fan speed setting two of those um, HEPA filters so that if their HVAC broke, they would still be meeting code. They would still be exceeding wow. code if they have you, like a normal classroom occupancy. That's outstanding. So that means that if they are meeting code with their mechanical ventilation and they have these HEPA filters, they would be meeting some of the most aggressive recommendations we've heard of. And they just did it by, by doing something that was free. So mm -hmm. uh, Madison City Schools, uh, they I think they have them in a closet. They got maybe 15 per school. Uh, we let them know about that school that exercised the program for two per classroom and Madison City Schools, as far as I can discern, did not opt in. Madison mm -hmm. County Schools also, we can't, uh, we can't tell that they did anything with that. It doesn't seem like they did. And their ventilation as well. I mean, I'm aware of some uh, measurements there from faculty and they're comparable to James Clemens where we saw 6% rebreathed air rate. So that's about three times what you'd be breathing in from other people. Uh, or even six times as much as you'd be breathing in, depending on the, the size of the classroom, if you had met code. So uh, none of it's really good. And I don't know why they're not doing these free things to just keep kids in class. It's not even like you have to keep those filters after that period of time. If those two years of filters run out and it, you didn't seem to do anything, just give them to the teachers or something. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, it, it really does seem like a no-brainer. I mean, all of this is, is coming in the context of COVID, which did uh, obviously increase risks for a lot of people. Uh, but I don't know anybody that loves getting sick. You know, just outside of the COVID context, I don't know anybody that loves that. And if you can reduce my chances of getting sick in the workplace or my children getting sick at school and then bringing that home to me for free, I'm really going to be questioning why you're not doing that. Uh, wh what is uh, What could possibly be the reason other than... I mean, you know, uh, laziness, maliciousness, you know, like, but, but that's, it's so weird to think about that there would be school administrators that are, you know, like, you know, uh, 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 <laughs> doing their, doing their hands like this, thinking about, oh, I can't wait to get all these parents sick, but that's the effect, right? 
It is. So I, I know that there are concerns about having enough people, enough staff to go run around and change those filters. But I mean, nobody ever asked me if I would do it. I certainly would. Mm. I would go to all the schools and do that. And I know that I have, I'm connected with parents who have volunteered to do similar kinds of efforts on a recurring basis. So there is um, not a lack of support for doing it. It's just that there's been a lack of willpower to do it because mm. I believe they underappreciate the connection between not giving students fresh air and then finding them getting sick. But you know, if you didn't have a filter in a in a in a fish tank and you had a bunch of fish and they were breathing in all that yuck basically and you didn't have any filter they would die <laughs> like so i'm not saying that um that this is what's going to happen to kids but i am saying like it's common sense that if if you live in in an environment and and you're there all the time you need to have clean stuff to breathe it's just kind of like common sense so right. i think that parents need to call schools and each time their kid is sick with another virus and tell them hey you need to up your ventilation game and quit putting this on me and my kid. Don't tell me yeah, I need to get my kid in more often and don't make me take time off work because of these issues. This is really on you. You had all the information. You had three years to do something. You had ESSER funds. You had the ELC program with free HEPA filters. You've made your decisions to spend it on learning loss in 2020, but you really need to do something now because the learning loss that's happening right now is affecting my kids' grades in some cases. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what can community uh, community members do? Uh, you mentioned that. And I think that's that's great. I mean, to start having those conversations with the schools. But, you know, what else can folks do if they, they're interested? Yeah. One thing that they could do is come to the Madison Public Library on Wednesday, July 19th at 630. So just plugging for our event here. But we'll be in Auditorium One presenting. Thank you. Yeah. We'll be um, presenting how air quality relates to public health and kind of just basically being able to attend work and school more often and just focus and, and do a great job at what we do and what we love to do. So we'll educate about what parents really need to be demanding in quantifiable terms, because that's one thing parents haven't had in the toolbox mostly. What exactly should I ask for? And how do I avoid getting hand waved away? How do I ask for something quantifiable so there, there can be a yes or no answer as to whether it's been done? Another thing is, and this is a, it's a privilege to be able to do this, but you could buy a CO2 monitor. You also could borrow one from us, indoor air care advocates. We've lent them out to various occupants of buildings who want to understand, and this is not just in schools, but just want to understand, well, am I getting adequate ventilation in the place where I work? Um, or are they hotboxing me with my office mates um, who are sneezing? And so I, I don't think any of it's about being afraid of a virus. I think it's about like, why are you causing me this undue stress and, and burden mm. when I really just, I like to do my work. I am actually, I'm great at it. I want to do it and I don't want to be sick. So why are you doing this to me? So getting a CO2 monitor is a way to do that. We're also trying to establish a CO2 monitor lending program with the library. We'll update on that um, at a later That's time. Cool. So those are two things you can do. Absolutely. Uh, Michael, before you go, we did have a question from the chat about uh, the impact of school population to the size of the school. Uh, is there a recommend uh, a recommended square footage per child that would that that is you know that would be acceptable, or is it just more about filtration and flow? I don't have great figures. I will say that the American Industrial Hygiene Association has said that if you can't give kids at least thirty square feet per kid. Um, so, you know, multiply 20 kids by 30 and you get a 900 square foot room, right? If you can't give them that much space, they've indicated that you should be going uh, towards about 12 air changes per hour rather than six air changes per hour. So there are recommendations I'm aware of that have a have that 30 square feet as a metric for going toward the higher end of ventilation recommendations. But I'm I'm not an education expert per se, right? I'm just a dad who doesn't understand why we're not doing this. Uh, so I don't know what the proper... Uh, amount of square footage is per kid. 
I do know that once you have adequate ventilation, if children are spaced out adequately, if the basically if the teacher to student ratio is is okay and the and the room is big enough, then distancing like we used to kind of pursue foolishly without ventilation, distancing actually does begin to matter because mm -hmm. you know the air that someone breathes out has um, has a chance of getting sucked up or filtered or ventilated out instead of going into the next kid and getting them sick and maximizing illness. So certainly being farther apart does make a difference, but only when you've got ventilation. If you don't, that stuff is just going to cloud up and fill up in the room, and it doesn't matter that you had the kids far apart. Mm. So that's why I personally think it was foolish to pursue distancing without first making sure we had done something about ventilation and um, and had the appropriate amount of fresh air coming in. I see. I see. That's and and uh, in case you you still weren't convinced by all the benefits that, that he's been talking about 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 having um, all this uh, you know improved air quality. Infinite content in the chat says if the air quality is better and more oxygen is in the air, students will be more focused. Casinos pump in oxygen to keep gamblers more awake and alert all the time. I didn't know that, but but there we go. That's, <laughs> That's William J. Fisk is a. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I, I just that's interesting, and and yeah, I, uh, appreciate that infinite content. <laughs> William J. Fisk is a Lawrence Berkeley um, scholar or, or academic, rather, who published a review of many, many, many kinds of literature, and they all said the same thing: as you give kids more ventilation and fresh air, their cognitive performance and even their grade point averages and test scores increase. And so, there's no downside to free fresh air. So we're just hoping that the schools that have still got ESSER money that they've failed to be able to allocate to the things they thought they would might be able to change course. The ARPA Act actually sets forth that you must update your plan every six months and you are free to update it in light of any facts that you come into contact with that may change your course. And so all schools have an option if they have yet to spend those committed funds, have an option to rebudget that and spend it on something that's going to make a difference in terms of the current learning loss that they're experiencing. I just think that it's difficult to get them to believe that there's a connection or that there is a problem, even though parents are seeming to complain about it. So that's mm. more parents need to get together and, and acknowledge the problem and, and know that there are solutions. We don't have to just complain. We really have something we should have expected. Right. Uh, last thing, Michael, remind us about your article that was published in Salon recently. Yeah, I co-authored this with a co-founder of Protect Their Future, and we just wrote about how, I mean, there are so many air quality scientists and aerosol scientists and HVAC engineers and professionals, industrial hygienists, et cetera, who are saying, hey, this is a thing. You can really, you can actually enjoy that normalcy that we were kind of guaranteed and promised. And, and I should add, uh, the nurses unions in, in particular in, in the UK are, have also been very vocal on this issue. Yeah, unions in the UK have actually put together ventilation guides. And so I think they're really on top of understanding like what their working conditions ought to be if they're expected to be at work and, and attending and all that stuff. So I certainly think it would be valuable, um, kind of tying into your show, right, for unions to understand kind of the, the new currency at the cash register of um, of health, of public health. And that new currency is equivalent outdoor air. And we, we stand ready to really tell anybody who is interested. I mean, we have we have spoken to homeless shelters. We have spoken to people who work in uh, government buildings. It's just anybody who wants to understand the connection between public health and outdoor air and the science and recommendations. We would absolutely love to share with you what we've put together, which is all based on what the experts are putting forth. And we think that that helps people understand what they should be expecting, demanding, asking for, et cetera. Awesome. Thanks so much, Michael. Yeah, really appreciate you. Thank really you. Really appreciate it. Have a good one. Awesome. Take care. You too. Uh, 
Adam, looks like we got another caller in the queue. So right. let's bring them on the air to sure. see uh, see what they've got to say. Um, really appreciated that conversation with uh, with Michael. Um, yeah, and be before good. we bring the caller on the air, I'm going to take just a moment of personal privilege to say that uh, I actually contacted Limestone County Schools as a parent. Mm. Um, I learned this information from Mike and the information, you know, the organizing that his group is doing. And so I'm not an expert by any means and certainly don't know as much about it as Michael does. But uh, when I heard free, <laughs> free filters for every classroom, I thought, well, hell, my daughter deserves one. <laughs> and so does every other kid. Yeah. And so I I made the ask and uh, got nowhere fast. Mm -hmm. And, and um, like you, Jacob, I'm like, wait a second, I'm trying to help you help them. Mm. And I'm telling you, it doesn't cost money. Mm. Like, probably just need an email here, a signature there. Mm -hmm. You know, come on now. Yeah. Uh, so that that is often the frustration that we we experience as act activists and as organizers out here trying to force any kind of positive change in our community. And it's just uh, it's a matter of persistence and education and, and continued agitation. So. Uh, appreciate Michael and all the work he's doing. Yeah. On that note, let me uh, bring our caller on the air from 701, I believe. 701 area code, what's your name and where are you calling from? Uh, Tyler, and I'm calling from uh, 701, is from uh, North Dakota. Tyler from North Dakota, what's on your mind? I'm just I'm just a teamster, and I, uh, I've been listening to your show for like the last four days. I've been just binging with you guys on YouTube, and I just appreciate what you guys are doing, bringing light to the contract talk and everything, uh, everything that Sean O'Brien's doing. You guys are doing a fantastic job. Um, I was just curious, um, are you guys teamsters, any one of you? Uh, Tyler, appreciate the call and appreciate the compliments. Uh, we are not Teamsters. We are union members here in the state of Alabama. I'm a member and a steward of uh, AFGE, Local 1858, the American Federation of Government Employees. Um, and Adam is a uh, member and, and trustee of the Stagehands Union, IATSE, Local 900 in the area. Um, and so we just we do this on the side because we care about working folks, uh, unions, educating people about uh, what they can do to make their lives better, and we feel like uh, this contract fight with the Teamsters and UPS is a really good educational opportunity uh, for so many Americans across the country to see what the power of collective organization can do for you uh, and your family. And I even, you know, even though UPS is going out with these numbers about you know, full-time drivers make $93,000 a year. And, and we, we talked about how that's, you know, there's a little bit more context there. They have to work 60, 70 hours a week to get $93,000. But even that, uh, you know, I, I don't, it, it doesn't bother me that that number gets out there because that still tells people, look at what uh, unionization has brought these people. Uh, and look at what it can bring you if you and your coworkers do it. So uh, it's a real uh, whose side are you on kind of moment. And uh, so we love and appreciate our Teamster brothers and sisters, and and are cheering y'all on absolutely all the way. And uh, and just encourage y'all to keep up the fight and continue organizing and continue having these conversations amongst each other and in the community. And and I think the community is going to continue to rally behind y'all. Uh, at least that's what I believe. I think the public is behind the UPS drivers, the Teamsters, and so I uh, really appreciate you calling in and uh, appreciate your, your membership.
Yeah, I, I've, uh, yeah, for sure. I just, I've been with UPS since uh, tw- uh, 2010, uh, fresh out of high school, 20 years old. Uh, I'm going on year 13 now. Uh, a little sick, sorry. So if you can't understand me, um, <clears throat> um, so no, it's 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 good that this contract is uh, finally finally O'Brien is is doing something. Uh, also, didn't do a very good role in the 2018 one. It just completely was a mess. And I think that I think that we should put our dig our heels in and we get what we need again and, and bump up our, our money because when I first started in 2010, I was making 8.50 an hour working the night shift mm. from 10 o'clock at night until three in the morning. And of course, um, $130 check every week is not going to cut it by any means. So. I did uh, have another job in the morning and worked all day, and, and that's just no way, no way to be. But you know that's what it's been since then. So um, I just think that there needs to be a lot of changes with wages and whatnot, and maybe even I was even thinking like because they have the health insurance, you know that's their big ploy. You know, come here and work. Mm-hmm. Get the health insurance. You got the best health insurance. You know that, that we fought for. And we got and that's true. We have really good health insurance. Maybe like bump somebody's wages up if they don't want to get the health insurance. You know, just do something where it can bring some bodies in the building because we are just lacking bodies. Mm. And us part-timers are working excruciating hours. Sometimes we're going in at eight right now, and we're getting and we're getting out at three in the morning. I mean, it's I mean, it's, it's mm. crazy. Yeah, that. That that's wild. Um, it, you said that you've been working there since 2010, 13 year teamster, and you started at, at 850. And and of course we know that 850 went a little bit further 13 years ago than it does now. But it didn't go that much further. It was still only a dollar above the minimum wage because the last time the minimum wage was raised was in 2009, where it got put up to 725. So you know you're talking about not making that much more than minimum wage uh, even back in 2010, and and so. You know that, that those numbers are still important, uh, even amid some of the some of the UPS workers making a decent wage. There are still a lot of part timers that are making uh, like you did near minimum wage. Um, would you uh, and and you don't have to answer answer this if you don't want to, but would you care to tell us what you're making now? As as presume, are you still a part timer? I still am a part timer, um, and I am now at twenty dollars and fifty cents an hour after thirteen years. Mm. So. And the people are hiring at seventeen bucks an hour, sixteen bucks an hour. Yeah. And when they had the and when they had the pay raise uh, during the COVID, they bumped it up to nineteen to get people in there because we were so heavy. Mm. We we're processing thirty pack thirty thousand packages a day in our building, and they bumped it up to nineteen bucks an hour. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden, after that after that year, it they, they came out and they said, "You guys are all going back to." Sixteen fifty, seventeen dollars an hour. You mm-hmm. guys are losing that two, extra two dollars an hour. But you bring those people in at seventeen dollars an hour, and they just started. And I'm over at twenty dollars an hour. You're right where I'm at. Right. And it's like, whoa. Yep. Yeah. I'm better uh, off taking a couple of years. I'm better get, taking a couple of years off, getting my and family coming back. Here, and coming back and making the same amount of money. Right. Yeah. No. I mean, no joke. Uh, it is. It, it's. Im- Companies are so loath to actually 
give you respect for for loyalty and for you know for for giving them i mean really the best years of your life and the idea that they don't respect that is is really gross and that's why we have to make them respect it right and that's why this contract fight is so important um are are you a part-timer uh by choice at this point or are would yeah so 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 my dad owned the business and i i worked for him and uh, he he recently, he passed away in 2020, so I just you know kind of been doing that sprinkler gigs with mm. uh, my own, but I just wanted to be a part timer and make a little extra money in the winter when I was off, and it just turned into kind of just stuck, and I just kind of been doing it, you know, I just kind of mm. go off a couple hours sleep here, a couple hours sleep, and then I had a kid, I had a child, and I had another child, I got married, and it's like I need the health insurance, so go in for four hours a night and do what I got to do, you know, make a little extra money every week would hurt. <laughs> you know. Yeah. All right, uh, Tyler. No, I know, but I never want to get into the driver because I know how they how 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 much they drive. Yeah. Crazy. So. Uh, yeah. But money for ninety three thousand a year is uh, is really work for for those guys. Yeah, they definitely work for it. That's for sure. <laughs> All right, guys. I appreciate you guys. All right, appreciate it, Tyler from North Dakota. Um, thanks for the call. Uh, if you want to get where Tyler was, you can give us a call at 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. The phone lines are open. You can also send us a text message if you don't want to call uh, at the same number. We're going to go ahead and take a break really quick, and we're going to be right back with some more Alabama news. Don't go anywhere. There's a lot of talk about a shortage of workers, but that's not the case with IBW-558. We have provided our customers over 3,000 workers and performed over 3 million man hours in a pandemic year. With 8,000 OJT hours, 900 classroom hours, OSHA 30, and a state license, our members receive the equivalent of a master's degree. That's what makes IBW-558 the right choice for your electrical needs. Look us up at Facebook or at IBW-558.org. Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at IAMAW44.org. Support for this program also comes from the Iron Workers, Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need iron workers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer, and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Ironworkers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Iron Workers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. 
We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. The Laborers International Union of North America, Local 366, is proudly recruiting North Alabama workers to work construction and nuclear plant maintenance. If you're interested, please contact Donna at their training center to start the process. That phone number is 256 415 Again, that phone number is 256-415-7452. No experience is needed. Free training is offered, but you must be able to pass a background check and a drug test. Local hiring that grows our community with good-paying jobs that have benefits is their mission. Live better. Work union. Local 366. Feel the power. Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. I'm attorney Tommy Senior. When you've been injured and need help, you need a lawyer who's with you. Senyard Law. You need attorneys always available to take care of you. Senyard Law. And keep you in the loop. It's your case. You need to know what's happening. Senyard Law. And never a charge to meet with us to evaluate your case. Senyard Law. A new firm, but an old name. One that will stay with you every step of the way. Senyard Law. The name with proven results. Do you work in an auto manufacturing plant? Are you tired of taking pride in your work without getting the respect you deserve? Consider joining the fight to unionize. Auto workers across the industry are coming together because with a union, we can negotiate for the pay, benefits, and security that we deserve and can help sustain our families. In union plants, workers bargain for long-term wage increases, competitive bonuses, and more affordable benefits. You can join the growing wave of organizing today. Find out more and contact us at Uniting Auto Workers on Facebook or contact UAW Region 8 in Lebanon, Tennessee by going to www.uawregion8.net. That's www.uawregion, the number eight, dot N-E-T. A better future is ours. to you I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell Alabama's only union talk radio show. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. Like I said earlier, if you've got anything to add, you can give us a call or send us a text. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That's right, folks. And for those of you who don't know, we air live on WVNN, the right-wing talk radio station here in Huntsville, Athens listening area, every Saturday from 9.30 a.m. to 11 a.m. 
and we have our overtime section which airs at 11 o'clock immediately after the main show ends it's online only on facebook and youtube and of course podcast later uh, we actually got our start on WVNN, which is the birthplace of Sean Hannity, of all people, and home to all sorts of reactionary propaganda that we personally find uh, highly objectionable. But we think it's important to get a different perspective out there to multiple audiences. We're happy that a portion of the show is replayed during the week on WZZA, the historic black radio station in northwest Alabama, and on WHIV, a community radio station in New Orleans. We release the full episode on Spotify, Apple, and the various podcasting apps. So please subscribe to us on your app of choice and give us a good review. And throughout the week, clips of the show are released as standalone videos on YouTube and in some cases, TikTok. So if there's a specific segment or interview you want to find, we do try to make it easy for you. Just do us a favor and hit subscribe and like. All of our content is completely free. So special thanks to all of you who donate, all of you who comment and call in. Uh, Appreciate all these Teamsters that are calling in uh, this morning. Really love that. Uh, And thanks to all of you who've liked us, shared us, and reviewed us. That engagement on social media and the podcasting ads really does help. And it's a quick, easy, and free way to support the program. If you believe it's important to have our own media of, by, and for the Southern working class, please consider supporting us however you can, and please share with your coworkers, friends, family, and neighbors. We know there's a lot of good causes you can support, and our listeners are working folks with limited incomes. So if you do find value in our project and you're willing to chip in a couple bucks, it would really mean a lot. Uh, We've got some great stuff planned as we grow the project, and we can't do that without you. So really appreciate everyone tuning in this morning uh, and every morning. And uh, yeah, I appreciate the, the calls and questions and comments we've had already this morning. Oh. And I did just want to remind folks that, uh, yeah, Jacob and I are union members. We are not members of the Teamsters, but we are certainly supporters of the Teamsters effort. Uh, I myself am a stagehand with IOTC 900, a service political coordinator and a trustee in, that, uh, in the union. And uh, prior to that, I served as a high school history teacher and was very involved in the association uh, and served as a field staffer for the NEA affiliate here in Alabama and represented about 1,500 workers in Huntsville City Schools for for over five years. I was very involved in my staff union uh, during that time, which is an affiliate of NSO, the National Staff Organization. And uh, of course, I'm a dual carter, also a member of the IWW. Got my red card and, uh, you know, I'm proud to be a member of IWW as well. So uh, that's a little bit about my background and, uh, you know, really appreciate Jacob and I'm proud of his involvement. He jumps right into the movement at an early age and, uh, you know, has, has been involved with AFGE and North Alabama Labor Council, helped get that going again. So, um, you know, that's what we do. We are trying to build power for the Southern working class, uh, particularly here in North Alabama. That's what we're about, and that's what this show is about, and we appreciate everybody who uh, who agrees and tries to support the effort. Yep. Thanks for that, Adam. Uh, before we get into another segment, here's a public service announcement. Uh, stamps are going up from 63 to 66 cents on Sunday. Uh, so if On you... Sunday as in tomorrow? Oh, tomorrow's Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> so if you're listening I to this... I better go order some stamps for the show after this, yeah. Uh, I ordered $150 <laughs> of stamps last week. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, we need more of our uh, Pete Seeger stamps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I ordered $150 of Pete Seeger stamps. Um, so, yeah, uh, so this isn't going to help you if you listen to this show as a podcast. So, uh, you know, that's a little bit of punishment for not listening to us live, yeah, I guess. Yeah, you snooze, you um, lose. Yeah, you snooze, you lose. Uh, but if you're listening to us live and you mail stuff with any amount of regularity, uh, you should stock up on stamps before they go up tomorrow. Uh, I know that I did, and sounds like Adam will uh, before the day ends today. That's um, right. Yeah, so let's talk about this. Bosses uh, have been fined for killing an Alabama worker uh, earlier. It was uh, the 5th of July, so just a couple of days ago. And uh, this is, for the third time, this company, the operator of sawmills in Alabama, Florida, and Mississippi, this is the third time that they have failed to follow federal workplace safety standards across their organization, according to the Department of Labor, this time resulting in a worker fatality at its Alabama facility. Uh, An investigation by OSHA found that this 20-year-old sawmill worker, part of a six-member crew trying to clear a jammed roller at the company Rex Lumber LLC in Troy, Alabama, in December 2022, was crushed when stored energy caused the infeed unit to close in on him. Uh, So OSHA issued a willful citation for allowing workers to perform maintenance on equipment without controlling hazardous energy sources. The company also failed to review its energy control procedures regularly to ensure appliance, and get this, did not train their employees on how to isolate stored energy in hydraulic accumulators. And those are some big fancy words i'm not totally sure what all of those mean but these are these are machines uh and and operations that can and did kill a person six months ago seven months ago and the idea that this company did not train their employees on the proper procedures for this machine is absolutely insane and is why they got a willful citation as opposed to something that was you know so the osha can give willful citations and they can give uh other things that are sort of like less than willful right, right? uh that, that are kind of indicative of oh you know well they, they just they didn't understand exactly what they were doing maybe uh but if you are not giving your employees training uh when they're working with deadly machinery that's willful and um, and you know I mean uh, evil. It's messed up. Yeah, it is just messed up. Uh, so, like I said, this is the third time that they have been uh, uh, cited by federal investigators. Uh, the incident follows tragedies in 2021 and 2020 related to improper machine operations at two Rex Lumber sawmills in Florida. At the Graceville, Florida location in 2021, an employee trying to fix a machine's faulty hydraulic valve suffered crushing injuries when they were caught in the machine's wheels and pulleys. A few months before that, in December of 2020, a worker suffered an amputation injury and died in the hospital days later after their hand came in contact with the nip point of a conveyor's roller at the Bristol, Florida location. Really gross stuff here from Rex Lumber LLC. Uh, The Department of Labor says that after its investigation in Troy, OSHA assessed the company with $184,000 in proposed penalties. Since 2019, the agency has cited the sawmill operator and its subsidiaries for 12 violations. 
So the company has 15 days from receipt of the citations and penalties to either comply or request an informal conference with OSHA uh, or contest the findings before the Independent Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission. So a really gross story and yet another uh, uh, highlighting of the fact that uh, another opportunity to highlight the fact that Alabama has zero state level safety and health investigators. Um, and that is on purpose. Uh, another important thing to note is that Alabama is the seventh most deadly state for working people in the country. The seventh most deadly state for working people. That means our deaths on the job per capita is higher than 43 other states. And yet, because we have so little safety regulators and investigators, our injury reporting rate is lower than the national average. So think about that. We have less injuries, These this data says. We have less injuries than the majority of states, but we have more deaths than almost all of them. Obviously, hmm. you know, those numbers are, uh, they don't quite match. And, uh, you know, I think it's pretty obvious to, con the obvious conclusion there is that it's because we don't have any state level regulators. We don't have anybody in the state of Alabama that is tasked with keeping workers safe on the job. So, yeah, real gross stuff there. Um, Doesn't exactly sound like family values. No, no. Definitely not family values, uh, but um, employers aren't the only people interested in killing people in Alabama. There's another story about that uh, from that that Lee Hedgepeth uh, brought out, right, Adam? Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to lift up this article by Lee Hedgepeth. Uh, he has his own website called Tread, and uh, he's got an article out called Alabama Plans to Gas Condemn Citizens. Are others already at risk? And um, let me just quote a bit here from this. Um, to set it up, he he opens by talking about the space shuttle Columbia and folks who died actually from nitrogen. And um, nitrogen is the gas that uh, the state of Alabama is considering using for executions. And basically, it just the idea is you are deprived of oxygen. Uh, and you are killed that way. Um, so, you know, here we are. We've been uh, chatting this morning about air quality and the importance of air quality. And, and this is, you know, the move that the state of Alabama is making, um, trying to poison people. And so I wanted to quote here from Lee. Now, more than four decades after the men's nitrogen deaths inside Columbia, the state of Alabama is preparing to go where no state has gone before. But does its pursuit of a more grim mission, the taking of a condemned man's life using nit nitrogen gas, come at the risk of others? Soon, potentially within weeks, Alabama plans to begin executing its citizens using nitrogen gas. The method is untested, having never been systematically used for judicially sanctioned executions. The storage and use of nitrogen gas, lawyers for the state have acknowledged, is risky posing potentially fatal hazards not only to the state's intended victim, but also to prison workers, spiritual advisors, members of the press, and other incarcerated individuals. 
So far, however, officials with the Alabama Department of Corrections have refused to answer questions about the process the agency's workers will use to gas condemned individuals, including inquiries about precautions taken to protect staff, witnesses, and others present. But unlike the accident aboard Columbia, which was subject to federal workplace oversight, state-run facilities like prisons operate in a regulatory vacuum in many jurisdictions, including Alabama compounding the risk of an untested method of execution that may already place workers at risk of injury or death. The storage and planned use of nitrogen gas by the state of Alabama to kill its citizens, despite the admitted risk involved, is not subject to any workplace regulator, state and federal officials confirmed to tread this week. And so I really thought that was interesting. And, uh, you know, the state of Alabama is so bound and determined to kill folks that they are willing to risk the executioners themselves. And um, boy, if that doesn't say something, I don't know what does. Yeah, you can read more at treadbylee.com. That is treadbylee.com. T-R-E-A-D-B-Y-L-E-E.com. Um so the last thing that we want to get to uh, before we wrap up the first half of the program is uh, remembering uh, Minnie Bruce Pratt. She is an Alabama native. She was a uh, women's liberation and LGBTQ activist, a poet and educator. She died last Sunday, uh, surrounded by friends and family in Syracuse, New York, at the age of 76. She was born in 1946. Um and uh, like I said, a poet, educator, activist, and essayist. She was born in Selma, Alabama, and raised in Centerville. Uh, she retired in 2015 from her position uh, as professor of writing and women's studies at Syracuse University in Syracuse, New York, where she was invited to help to de- help develop the university's force, first LGBT studies program. Uh, Adam, tell us a little bit more about her. Yeah, sure thing. And, and I really appreciate... Um you know, some of the obituaries and other uh, immemorial articles that I I read about her uh, helps me get to know a little bit more about this person who I was frankly not very familiar with. Uh, I will say really quickly, I do know that she was a very strong supporter of uh, the miners in Brookwood. I saw her um, on Twitter uh, uh, frequently, and I think think she even made a couple of trips down to Brookwood. Well, that totally tracks with what I learned about her life. Uh, Someone who was a staunch advocate for, you know, working people and for, you know, the underdog. Um, And and that's really what... uh, you know, I, I think is worth highlighting about her as an Alabamian and as a Southerner. Um, so I did enjoy Mary Hall's article on AL.com and a couple of things I wanted to pull from there. Uh, Pratt was a prolific advocate and writer throughout her life. She pushed the boundaries of feminist teaching and thinking. She wrote poems and essays about race, class, gender, and sexuality which received awards from the Academy of American Poets, the American Library Association, the Poetry Society of America, Lambda Literary, and the Publishing Triangle. In 2022, she wrote for AL.com that she and other lesbian, transgender, and gender nonconforming people have always been in Alabama. Pratt was born in Selma and graduated from Bibb County High School. She attended the University of Alabama just one year after George Wallace stood in the schoolhouse door, according to her website. She has degrees from Tuscaloosa and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. 
Later in life, she split her time between Syracuse and Centerville. I still consider Alabama my home, Pratt said in a recent interview with Reckon News. I'm really unhappy that people don't know I'm from Alabama. I want them to know I'm from Alabama. I'm proud of it. I'm proud of the resistant traditions of Alabama, resistance to oppression that are embedded in the soil there. The Invisible Histories Project, an organization that researches Southern history, calls her, quote, a phenomenal poet, a fierce femme lesbian, a fighter for the working class and marginalized, and an unapologetically Southern woman. She was a Bama girl, said uh, Megan Sullivan, co-founder of the Invisible Histories Project and a friend of Pratt's. She never let it go, regardless of how long she spent in New York or anywhere else. She was always deeply, deeply Southern, very passionate about her hometown and the people that she grew up with. Pratt came out as a lesbian in North Carolina in 1975 and lost custody of her two sons as a result. This went on to be the topic of one of her most notable books, Crime Against Nature, titled to reference the sodomy laws that resulted in her losing custody. The reason I lost custody of my children was because I could be charged with a felony and therefore that was it, she said in an interview with Reckon. Quote, I was an unfit mother, boom, my children were taken away. And, you know, that's just such, you know, such a painful thing to think about uh, as a parent. Uh, the idea of the state taking away your children uh, because of who you are uh, it's just truly despicable. Um, you know, but she bounced back from, from them. She was a resilient woman. She went on to teach at uh, historically black colleges and then, you know, ultimately landed at Syracuse where she started the first LGBT study program. And she was a pioneer, um, and she was a pioneer in trans rights. She was pro-trans rights before that was popular, or you know, it was certainly less popular than than it is now. And uh, her spouse was a trans activist, uh, Leslie Feinberg. Uh, she died in 2014. They were together for 22 years, and um, you know. I spoke to a friend of mine who was inspired by Pratt and uh, also quite enjoyed her poetry, particularly her early stuff. And my friend emphasized how she was intersectional before folks really used that word, understanding the way class, race, gender, and more intersect and in impact people's lives. And like I said, Pratt was pro-trans rights at a time when it was you know, much less popular to be so. And throughout all of that, she was a true and proud Southerner and Alabamian. So uh, rest in power, many Bruce Pratt. Absolutely. Uh, that about her, uh, you know, wanting people to know that she was in Alabama, uh, she was an Alabamian, um, really reminded me of, of f folks that I knew from my childhood who uh, moved from Alabama to Indiana. Uh, they were two sisters, and they had two very different, uh, very different reactions uh, to their family moving to Indiana. Uh, one of them uh, was very embarrassed of having grown up rural on the mountain uh, in Alabama, uh, and so even before she, <laughs> even before she moved, she began practicing how to sound like a Yankee. Um, wow. so that people wouldn't be able to recognize her as uh, as a Southerner. But her little sister did exactly the opposite. And so 
even now, even after having lived in Indiana for a decade, she has probably the thickest Southern drawl I have ever heard <laughs> a young woman have. Um, and so I've always thought that was uh, that was really cool. Well, you keep it, sister. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> we've got a uh, we've got a few plugs here, and then we're going to go into overtime, where we're going to give you an update on what's going on with the Teamsters and UPS. We've been alluding to it some uh, during the main show, and we've also got an interview that we're going to be having with Dave Zirin, the sports editor for the Nation. Really excited about this. Yes. Uh, I love his stuff. Looking Absolutely. It. It's going to be a lot of fun. So uh, first, you know, check out Labor Notes. You can go to labornotes.org. Uh, every month they have a new training series. And this month, uh, this month they are talking about the assault on pensions and how to fight back. That's going to be on July the 10th. So there's still time to uh, apply and be a part of that, as well as the regular Secrets of a Successful Organizer training. Um, and then uh, from... Uh, from Jobs to Move America, I believe, or no, Resilience to Restoration, uh, they are presenting a summer special Jobs and Justice Zoom webinar with friends of the show, both of them, Kathleen Kirkpatrick and Patricia Todd. That is going to be on Monday, July 17th at 6 p.m. Central. Uh, both of them are friends of the show, former guests, so we know it's going to be a great discussion on clean energy jobs and how we can use them to help working class communities. Also on Monday, July the 17th at 4.30 p.m. at May Jemison High School in Huntsville on Pulaski Pike. There's going to be a redistricting town hall held by Representative Anthony Daniels and Laura Hall. Uh, for all my elections and voter engagement folks, definitely go check that out if you're in the area and want to hear the latest. Alabama Arise has Tuesday's Tuesday town halls coming up on July the 18th at 6 p.m. Uh, go to our guests' website, Indoor Air Care Advocates. Um, and you can find out more about what they're doing there. We are going to go ahead and head into overtime where we're speaking to Dave Zyron, plus talking about some big labor stories. So you don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. Uh, and until next week, all power to the workers.